tonight, um, Father Casavon has agreed to speak with us. Um, originally, if you're an ardent follower of the schedule, as with any syllabus or schedule, they always get broken, um, especially when people cancel. So originally, the schedule had said that tonight was going to be on the new atheism, um, but the speaker that was originally going to do that ended up canceling. But for the most part, that's actually pretty uh, probably a good thing because I think I sort of stole all material of his topic when we went through the Enlightenment and modernity, because the new atheism really isn't much different than the old atheism, it's just not argued as well. Um, so, but anyway, so thankfully Father Casabon agreed tonight to come with a new topic that's um, sort of break out of the mold of what we've been doing, and it's an actual theological topic, um, would imagine that at a church. And so anyway, he's going to be talking about the nuptial dimension of ecclesiology, or the church as the bride of Christ. Um, and I assume most of you are very familiar with Father Casabon if you've been around St. Mary's. Um, and so, anyway, we're very glad to have him. He's going to um, turn it over to him, and he'll lead us, end up leading us in prayer because he's the priest, not me. Thanks, CJ. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God, our Father, you will all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest that the gospel may be preached to every creature. And your church gathered together by the word of life and strengthened by the power of the sacraments may advance in the way of salvation and love through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I'm glad to be with you all tonight. I want to begin um, actually with the uh, gospel uh, from the gospel of Matthew. It is chapter 22, starting in verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel that we just read is about the Sadducees. Um, one of the few things I remember in high school religion class at St. Joseph's was that the Sadducees were the group of Jews who were sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So if you want to remember the Sadducees, they're sad because they don't believe in the life after this. And the Sadducees were trying to trip up Jesus. They were trying to get him to uh, fall into a trap they had set for him. And their trap was this theoretical, this hypothetical story of a woman whose husband dies, and she marries the brother, and he dies, and she marries the second brother, and then the third brother, and then the fourth brother, fifth brother. I mean, this is like the black widow, this woman, I guess, right? I mean, I can't imagine why these brothers would continually marry this woman. She has a bad track record with her husbands. I know. Uh, so anyway, this, this black widow, you know, in ancient Israel here, and uh, 
he says, you know, so if you believe in heaven, then, you know, you're, you're, you're in a little conundrum because which one will she be married to in heaven if you say there's a heaven? And Jesus responds in a way they didn't expect, which was that uh, marriage doesn't exist in heaven. And maybe that is a, a surprise, uh, but that marriage is simply an earthly reality. In fact, when we make our, or when you make your marriage vows, I haven't made a marriage vow, but when you make your marriage vows, you make them um, until death do us part, that at death, the bond of marriage dissolves. Now, why is that? Well, obviously, marriage is sacred and marriage is a sacrament, and we know that most sacraments do continue beyond this life. Baptism, certainly, confirmation, holy orders, the grace of the Eucharist, which binds us to Christ. Why doesn't marriage continue past this earthly life? Well, to give you an analogy, how many, I know a lot of you live in Greenville. My parents live in Simpsonville, but um, how many of you live outside of Greenville? Anyone? Okay. When you're driving here, do you see signs to Greenville? Do you see any signposts to Greenville? Yeah? Okay. All right. When you're in Greenville, do you see signposts to Greenville? No. No. Why? Because you're here. here, right? Once you're here, once you're at the destination, the need for the signpost, the need for the sign, dissolves, disappears. The same thing sort of with marriage. Marriage is the signpost to heaven. Marriage is an understanding of what marriage is to be between God and his people, between Christ and the church. And once we're there, once we've reached our destination, then there's no need for the sign that prefigures, that foreshadows the reality. The reality trumps the need for the sign. This is the way that God wants to tell us what his relationship is supposed to be or ought to be like with us. That his, his, his relationship with his people, Christ's relationship with his church, is like that of a marriage. Well, in what way? Does it mean that we argue a lot and then make up? And you know, what, what exactly is it that makes us uh, this relationship to be like a marriage? And that's what I want to talk about tonight. And I want to talk about how that affects a lot of the particular teachings Uh, discipline and practices of the Catholic Church. Um, This is not a new concept. Uh, St. Paul was the one who described the nuptial mystery, the mystery of marriage between Christ and the church, as an essential part of God's plan, so much so that it's embedded in the very fabric of humanity's creation, and it's prefigured in the one flesh union between Adam and Eve. The union between Christ and the church, one that St. Paul describes as a mystery in his letter to the Ephesians, is the very source of the sacramental existence of the church. That the church is the sacrament of Christ. Because the church has become one with Christ, whatever is true of Christ is also true of the bride, the church, because of this union. And this union can never be revoked, it can never be undone. This, by the way, is why we believe in the indissolubility of marriage. It is an everlasting and irrevocable reality, this union between Christ and his church. It's a covenant, and this covenant is one between Christ's humanity and divinity, his divinity enfleshed in our humanity. And this union does not somehow contaminate his own pureness or his own holiness. Rather, the opposite is true. In this union, in this covenant of marriage between Christ and the church, humanity is elevated. It's transformed in its union with Christ, 
the divine bridegroom. Now, there's a liturgical prayer that echoes this transformation, that our humanity is lifted up in its union, marital union with Christ. You've probably never heard it before, actually, because it's said silently. Now, Nestor's preparing for the permanent diaconate here. I don't think we have any other deacons, but uh, he will learn how to say this prayer. Um, but it's the prayer where the deacon, usually, sometimes the priest, if there is no deacon, puts a little bit of water in the wine. Have you seen that? Well, it's, it's not to like dissolve the wine so that the priest doesn't get intoxicated up on the altar. Um, it's not that at all. Um, the prayer that the deacon says at that moment is, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who has humbled himself to share in our humanity. It's actually one of the most beautiful prayers of the Mass. It's unfortunate that it's spoken in silence, um, as the rubrics require, because I think it almost encapsulates the entire point of the whole Mass and the whole point of our faith. That in this liturgical gesture, the wine is not watered down by these few drops of water, but rather the water representing humanity is diffused in the wine, taking on the properties and the nature of the wine. The water is not just transformed by the wine, but indeed is transformed into wine. Now, this, of course, is one possible interpretation of Jesus' first miracle at the wedding feast of Cana. What a wonderful God we have that his first miracle happens to be the production of more alcohol. Obviously, it is way embedded in Catholic tradition that we are to have a good time. Uh, it's strange, right, that Jesus' first miracle should be making more wine. That's kind of a bizarre thing. It almost seems trite, right, that of all the things that he's done in the Bible, uh, healing the sick and raising the dead and um, preaching good news to the prisoners and those who uh, are in most need of his preaching and teaching, that his first miracle, his very, very first miracle, is making more booze. Um, so how, clearly we're not Baptists, right? That first of all. But, but how, are we to, how are we to understand that? Well, think again about water, again, in, in, in this understanding from the liturgical act. Think of this water representing humanity and think of the wine uh, representing divinity. So in this first miracle, the water is transformed into wine. Humanity is transformed into divinity, at least in symbol. And so it's almost like the, the beginning or the headline, the headline of an article which, which gives us an idea about what the article is going to be about. His first miracle of transforming water into wine gives us an idea and an insight about what his ministry is going to be about, what the incarnation is about, what the Paschal mystery is about, the transformation of our lowly humanity into his divinity. Um, it's interesting, too, that this happens through the intercession of his mother um, because his mother is really the first one to respond to God's invitation to be transformed. And she's the one who initiates uh, the request. The union between humanity and divinity, where does it first occur? Well, it first occurs in her womb, Right? And so it's so fitting that she be the one to intercede for these people who have a legitimate need. They've run out of wine. Make some more.
it also shows that Jesus is a good Jewish boy listening to his mother. So my mother points that one out. I think that's her favorite gospel verse as well for other reasons. Um, Actually, there's a theologian, several theologians have talked about the Song of Songs, also known as the Canticle of Canticles, Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. Um, it, it, it's a poem, it's poetic literature about uh, a lover and his beloved. And many of them have talked about how that is celebrating the first union of the word with human nature in the womb of Our Lady. So the church, back to the church, in a sense, is humanity itself, humanity that has been betrothed by Christ, and by that betrothal has been transformed by the bridegroom. Paraphrasing St. Augustine, the church is the world. The church is the world, but the world reconciled to God. Because she's been transformed into Christ in this one flesh union, the church is not only then his bride, the church is the bride of Christ, but because of this union, the church is also his body. Remember St. Paul talks about the union between Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, they become one flesh, and he says this is a great mystery. He says, but I am referring to the mystery of Christ and the church. It is the expression, the body of Christ, which the church points to as a special value, um, with the image of the bride, because joined to Christ, the body of a redeemed and reorganized humanity is given a certain internal union and a coherence, a unity, despite the diversity of its members. So we're all very, very different. We all come from different cultures, uh, different ethnicities, uh, males and females, Greeks and Jews, and all of us through all these cultures and all these times and all these different situations are called into the same body by the mystery of Christ. So we're not just talking about the union of the church with Christ, we're talking about the union of you and I with one another and our culture with other cultures uh, throughout time and, and throughout space. The union of humanity with itself. Because of course, in the very beginning, humanity through its own pride had, um, had been scattered into disunity. Of course, remember the Tower of Babel. Since the head of this body, which is Christ, has triumphed over death. The entire body has triumphed over death. Um, one theologian I'm particular, particularly fond of, um, his name is Henri de Lubac. Uh, he was writing in the 20th century. It's strange to refer to the 20th century, but the last century. Um, Catholicism, he says, is the form that humanity must put on in order to finally be itself. This idea that in union with Christ, we're not only, we not only come into union with Christ, but we become more fully who we are. We become in union with one another, but we become more fully and more authentically who we are in Christ, who reveals himself to us, but who also reveals ourselves to us. Um, the church, then, as the body of Christ, the church as this uh, bride, which has become the body, doesn't merely continue the work of Christ in the world, um, but is actually the continuation of Christ in the world. So we have these terms. We, we, we talk about the church as the bride of Christ, but we also talk about the church, we talk about one another as the body of Christ. 
it's the church traveling in space and time for the past 2,000 years that is the continuation of Christ's presence in the world uh, through the Eucharist, obviously, and through Scripture and through the works of charity of its members. It's Christ himself. It's not just the work of Christ. Um, the church, then, is, as the body of Christ, the sacrament, the signpost of Christ in the world. Now, I, I want to do something over here for a second. Um, we have this, I know this is, we have this relationship between Christ and the church in which Christ gives himself completely to the church. He gives over his body, he gives over his blood, he gives over his entire self to the church. And in this union of love, the two become one flesh. Again, as uh, St. Paul talked about the, the union of Adam and Eve, the first man and the woman, prefigures this one flesh union that's fulfilled in the relationship between Christ and all of humanity, between the Son of God and all of us, in which we are lifted up into Christ, in which our humanity is elevated into Christ, in which that water is transformed into wine. Um, the church then is called to love Christ, to be obedient to Christ, to be submissive to Christ. That's the true meaning, too, of the... Uh, very uh, rather uh, controversial uh, scripture verse where it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Women, wives, be submissive to your husbands, right? That priests don't like to preach about. But really what that's in fact is about is um, first the onus or the burden is upon the husbands to love your wives as Christ has loved the church, which is obviously on the cross. Um, so the church and Christ become this one one thing, this one flesh, right, in this relationship of love between Christ and the church. Now, this itself, this relationship itself mirrors another relationship, is a sacrament or a sign of another relationship. And that relationship is the Trinitarian life of Father and Son. So we believe that the Father from all eternity loves the Son with everything that He is. So the Father empties Himself out for the Son. Everything that the Father is, everything that He is, and all of His godness, all of His divine qualities are handed over freely to the Son. So the Son <clears throat> essentially receives the Father's divinity. And so the Son is God, as the Father is God. Right? Does that make sense? Kind of, sort of? The Son then, in obedience to the Father recognizing that all he is, he's received from the Father. The Son gives back to the Father everything that he is. And this relationship of love between Father and Son, this eternal relationship of love between Father and Son, is what we call, does anyone have an idea? Right. The Holy Spirit. This is a well-catechized group here. I expect nothing less from St. Mary's. Uh, the Holy Spirit, that relationship of love between Father and Son, which is so strong and so powerful that it is a third person of the Trinity. Um, you know, we often talk about our relationships as these third things that include us but are also apart from us, right? So you talk about our, your relationship with your wife, your relationship with your husband, or we need to work on our relationship, or we need to go to someone and talk about our relationship, or we need to strengthen our relationship. We talk, <clears throat> the way we talk, 
we talk about relationship as a, as, a, as a third thing, as a third reality that includes me and this other person, but is also somehow apart from us. Um, well, the relationship between father and son is so strong, so manifest, so real, that it's a third thing, but that third thing is not a thing, it's a person, the spirit. So the father, son, and Holy Spirit, so just as the son has received everything from the father, he... I know this is in your way. Just as the Father, just as the Son has received everything from the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, gives himself completely to the church in imitation of this Trinitarian love. So just as the Father has given everything to the Son, Christ gives everything to the church. Now in this relationship, the church then, because it's become one with the Son, is then lifted up beyond, this is heaven, this is earth, is lifted up beyond the, here, this is earth, see? It's blue. Okay. Here, we'll put a little green here too. That's Africa, that's Europe, here's North America. All right, I know it's beautiful. Um, I took art here at St. Mary's. <laughs> here's an interesting story, actually. Um, in second grade, my art teacher, um, we were doing little baskets with uh, cardboard paper, and Easter baskets, right, with cardboard paper, and we were supposed to weave them together, and I didn't get the concept of weaving. And she, she took and she told me how terrible it was. Um, about 20 years later, I found myself giving her communion at the altar at St. Mary's. And I did consider for a second whether or not I was going to give her communion, but <laughs> I decided, what would Jesus do, right? So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not that I hold grudges at all, clearly, right? So... <laughs> So in this union, um, humanity, right, represented by this, humanity is lifted up into the inner life of the Trinity. Um, does that look like it makes sense? All of this is sacramentalized. That's not really a word, but all of this is made to be a sacrament in marriage. Because in marriage, we have a man and we have a woman. Or if you live in Utah, you have several women. No, but you have a man and you have a woman. And the man gives himself to the woman in love as Christ has loved the church, at least ideally. And the woman loves the man back. And they are meant to become a one flesh union, right? They're united in self-giving love, which itself is a participation in the Holy Spirit. God is love, right? And they are to become one flesh so that the woman takes on um, the properties. For instance, she becomes part of his family. Uh, think about most of you women have taken on your husband's last names, as an example. Um, they become one thing, one flesh. And this marriage is itself a signpost of this, the relationship between Christ and the church, who become one. Now, the Christ, Christ and the church become one flesh through, not through sexual intercourse. This is obviously how man and woman become one, and also over the course of their lives and self-giving love. But Christ and the church become one. Anyone have any wild guesses where Christ and the church become one flesh? Yeah? Right? 
So in the Eucharist, Christ literally gives his flesh for his bride. So the Mass is literally this handing over of the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, for the bride, the church. So the Eucharist is this nuptial act. This is, by the way, um, Pope Francis wrote about the need to um, include women more, right? And we do. We need to include women more. Um, now, some women wonder why we can't uh, break the, uh, the stained glass ceiling, right? Uh, that women can't be ordained priests. And, and why is that? Well, are we trying to keep women away from power? No. Maybe 300 years ago we were, but we're not now. Um, well, no, really, right? I mean, because 300 years ago, everyone was trying to keep women from power. So <laughs> it wasn't just the church. Um, the church is clearly very much a 21st century reality, and the church preaches and teaches justice and the equality of the genders, but also the difference of the genders. Now, the interesting thing, though, is, is that when we understand the Eucharist to be a nuptial act, the, the priest is acting not just as Christ the head, but as Christ the bridegroom, right? That's where we get this sign value, that in the Eucharist, it's Christ the bridegroom giving over his body to the bride. And so when the priest utters the words of consecration, the institution, this is my body, he's speaking on behalf of Christ, the bridegroom. This is my body which I give to you, the bride, the church. In order that the church and the bride, the church and Christ become one flesh. In order that the church takes on the familial relationships of Christ. So, another example. When my mom married my dad, uh, my mom, whose maiden name is Zabel, um, became Mary Casabon, right? She took on his name. She also, and this is common in some families, not in all, but in some families, my mom also started calling my dad's dad, dad, instead of Mike or, or what was his name, Lewis or Mr. Casabon or something. She started calling my dad's dad, dad. And my father started calling my mom's parents, mom and dad, too. What's interesting here is the very first prayer after the prayer of the Eucharist, right? So think about the priest celebrates the Eucharistic prayer. He said all the Eucharistic prayer. We say the great amen. We stand up. And what's the first words we say? Our father, right? So... Right after the Eucharist has been celebrated, what has been completed, what has been effected and, and, and actuated is this familiar relationship now with God the Father, who's not just the Father of the Son, but now is our Father in a very real way. And so it's fitting that the first prayer we say after we celebrate the Eucharist, after we become one flesh as the bride, after we become one flesh with Christ, is our Father. Actually, the translation is something like Abba, right? Daddy. So a very, very intimate term for the Father. Because the church, through the Eucharist, through becoming one flesh with Christ, again, is elevated into the inner Trinitarian life, which itself is heaven. Being part of this giving and taking between Father and Son and the unity of the Holy Spirit. The Father eternally and infinitely loving the Son the Son receiving that love and in turn giving his love back to the Father eternally and infinitely in the unity of the Holy Spirit, which itself is personified love. I mean, that sounds great, right? 
infinite love. And that's what the Trinity is. Uh, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, called it the perichoresis. That's a fun word. Uh, you want an eraser? It's okay. It's fine. My hand is good to erase. Um, so perichoresis. Um, choresis, this is where we get the word choreography. In Greek, it means a dance. And peri um, means uh, around, like a periphery. So perichoresis means the dance around, to dance around. And so the ancient Greeks called the Trinitarian relationship of father giving himself to son, son giving himself to father. In the unity, the Holy Spirit, the dance of love, essentially. Um, so that's great. And that is what, that's what heaven is. And that, again, is why marriage, that's what marriage is called to be in its most ideal state. A sign of heaven, a sign of a relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A sign of the relationship between Christ and the church in the unity of love, which is also the Holy Spirit. In this holy dance of infinite and perfect love. The, uh, just to give another example, another image, um, you're familiar with the 19th chapter of John, right? You're like, what's the 19th chapter of John? In the 19th chapter of John, Jesus has been crucified. Um, the sun is setting. They want to make sure that he's off the cross, and so they're going to make sure he's dead. The other two who were crucified aside Jesus weren't dead yet, so they um, broke their legs so that they couldn't stand up anymore so that they would fall and they would be suffocated. That's, by the way, how you die by crucifixion and suffocation. Um, but they came to Jesus, and they discovered he was already dead. So they didn't break any of his bones, thus fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Okay. So instead, but just to make sure, they pierce him in the side, and blood and water flow out. Um, now, recall that St. Paul refers to Jesus as the new Adam. Are you familiar with that? So just as sin entered the world through one Adam, so redemption comes into the world through this new Adam. So Jesus is the new Adam. He's asleep on the cross. He's dead, but he's asleep because the words in Hebrew and Greek for sleep and death are very similar. So the new Adam is asleep on the cross and his side is opened, and blood and water, which the church assembly has, has, has historically and ancient, from ancient times referred to as the two streams of baptism and Eucharist, blood and water, um, flow out. Now, does that sound like anything you might have heard in Genesis? The original Adam, asleep, and his side is opened. And from his side is formed Eve. And for this reason, the two shall become one flesh together. So the idea is that the church is formed sacramentally. The church is formed. The two primary sacraments for us, which make us part of the church, are our baptism and the Eucharist. And so from his side, these two rivers, rivulets of uh, fluid, water, and blood, which represent the very life force of the church, flow out. The church, the bride, is being born from his side on the cross. 
um, just as Eve came forth from the side of Adam in Genesis. Um, there are two creation accounts, though, actually. Um, that's one of the creation accounts of woman. The second creation account is that um, God creates a man in his image. It says, God creates man in his image. Male and female, he creates man. Man, in this sense, is referring to all of humanity in a non-politically correct form. Uh, all of humanity is created in the image of God, male and female. But why is that? Well, that's because God is relationship. God's image is relationship. God is not just a single, solitary bachelor in the sky. God is in himself relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit in this dance of love. That dance of love requires another to give himself to, and that's the Son. Um, the image of that, the image of God, is male and female, man and woman, who are able to, together, become one flesh. So both creation accounts, the one where male and female are created together simultaneously as an image of God, and the second creation account where uh, the woman comes after man, Eve comes after man through his side being opened, both of these creation accounts refer to um, this idea of ultimate union. Does that make sense? Um, so, marriage is obviously more than, it's more than um, a convenient arrangement. The other thing about marriage is that it's meant to give life. It's meant to give new life. In this case, the Father and Son and the unity of their relationship with the Holy Spirit, their love is super abundant. It's effusive. When you're in love with someone, you want to tell people about it. Now we tell people on Facebook and Twitter, and we tweet images of our beloved, I guess. Um, but love is, is essentially effusive. Even before you had Facebook, you probably wanted to tell other people about it. You wanted to bring home your uh, beloved to your family and friends. You want your family and friends to meet them. You want to talk about the other with whom you were in love. And with God, it's the same thing. God's love is super abundant. God didn't need to create. God didn't have to create. But God's love is so much, it's so effusive, it's so bubbly, that God, in his love, decided to create the world. And the world was created in love. The world was created in this perichoretic dance of love of Father, Son, and Spirit. In the same way, this relationship between Christ and the church, the new life in this case that's created, is the life that's given to us, the new life that's given to us that we receive in baptism, which is described as a second birth. Um, the life that we receive in the Eucharist, in which the spiritual uh, renewal of our souls takes place, which our sins are forgiven, in which we become not just creations, but in which we become new creations in Christ. So that Jesus can say to us, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. So a new life is happening in this relationship between Christ and the church, even within us. And then, of course, in the relationship between man and woman, biological life. So all these are connected. The relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. The relationship between Christ, church, and their relationship of love. And that between man, woman, and their marital relationship. All these are intricately connected, which is why the church believes marriage is a sacrament, 
which is why marriage is holy. If only a sacrament for this life. Because again, once we enter into this dance of infinite love, the need for the signpost disappears. Because heaven is made manifest. The destination is around us, is among us. As a side note, um, this is one of the reasons why um, the, the practice of celibacy of, in, in um, the Latin rite of the Catholic Church is revered, and it is just a discipline. It's true that it can be changed, but it hasn't been changed in uh, 1,200 years because, again, this idea that the priest is, stands in the place of Christ the bridegroom. Um, and the church historically um, saw celibacy um, as, as a gift, not because sexual unions were icky in any way or dirty, but, but because the person who's deliberately living a celibate life, living deliberate celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, is already in a way trying to, to live out kind of this heavenly life already. Um, it, the best example, actually, it's not, I don't think, priests. I think the best example is, are the nuns. You know, we're blessed to have you know, sisters in, in our parish. And the sisters very self-consciously describe themselves as brides of Christ. Um, they're living out their baptism um, to remind us of what, what our destiny is, that all of us as part of the church are to be his beloved. Our, our, our call to be in union with him in this most intimate way, our call to be ultimately and eternally uh, happy with him, and in that union to be transformed with him as we become one flesh with Christ. And again, it's, just, it, it's not just something that we wait for in heaven, because in as much as we celebrate the sacraments today, in as much as we've been baptized, and in as much as we receive the Eucharist, we receive the flesh of Christ, we're already living out that heaven. It just hasn't been fulfilled and perfected yet. Um, it hasn't come to full fruition, but we're already living out in the here and now. The kingdom of God is already here. It just hasn't uh, fully blossomed, right? And that's what we're waiting for. So um, that's probably a lot. 